Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 2, we move into that book again, and we're going to be challenged more than maybe some of you understand. Um, In these early chapters, at least the first six, maybe first nine chapters of Acts, there's a lot of stuff that is going on, and I want you to understand that what you have here is simply many one-of-a-kind, unique type of experiences. So understand that, that when we are looking here in Acts, we're not looking at something that is going to be normative. What you have is a transition, a massive transition from one worldview to a new worldview. Uh, Another way to put it is we are transitioning away from the old covenant under Moses to the new covenant that's in Jesus Christ. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Just keep that in your mind, that there's this massive shift occurring, and with it comes uncomfortable or unusual situations that are very, very unique. Because no longer will the focus be on Israel. The focus is going to now be upon the church. Now, if you take both of those and you say they're really one and the same, then that will be a, a challenge for you. But, but if you understand that in the Old Testament, God, even through the Gospels, has been dealing with Israel, and now we have the birth of the church, and God is dealing with the church, and it's something unique, something new, then that will help you as you work through what you see going on. So the word of the day would be transition. Another word that you can choose to use is unique. In fact, if you are given to writing in your Bible, and I always encourage people to do that, that would be something you'd want to write in chapter 2, is transition and unique. Those are what you see happening here. What you should not think is normal. If you keep unique in mind, then you'll do fine. If you keep normal in mind, then you'll wonder why you don't see things happening the way you think they ought to. My most downloaded sermon is one I talked about with regard to Francis Chan and the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan, if you know who he is, and, and the Holy Spirit. And what I did was I played a YouTube video of him where he was lamenting the early church and the obvious overt power of God being manifested in the early church, and he used Acts chapter 2 for his example. And he talked about the fact, wouldn't it be awesome if we still saw it this way? And And then he basically said, this is normal. This is how God wants to work and should be working in the church, what you see here in Acts 2. And I played it, and I could see so many people who were excited over it. And it's like, yes, yes, Lord, yes. And then I got up, and I said, basically that. This is his view, and and it's true. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be exciting 
if all of these things happen. And then I said this, and he's completely wrong. And then you can just see all these faces fall as they're like, oh man, there goes pastor again. But he was wrong. And what I want you to understand is that this passage and these next several chapters, there are things that are being established for the early church that are just in their beginning infant stage, and, and they don't always necessarily maintain that appearance as time goes on. But there are many things that are very unique, not normal. And with, if you understand that, it will make your time in Acts a lot more easy. So what we do too often is that we try to make acts to be normal for us, that this is how it ought to be happening today. So we look at chapters like chapter two and what happens, and we forget that the entire worldview is going away, and a new worldview, the new covenant in Jesus Christ is coming into play, and with that comes this awkward time of transition. Now, if you think about how life-changing this COVID virus has been to the world, it might help you a bit. Whether you like the virus or dislike it, agree with it, disagree, like masks, don't like masks, none of that matters in this. That's not what I'm getting at. None of us can really deny, though, that the reality of this virus has changed radically everybody's life in one way or another. How much more with the complete shifting of how God is working among mankind. Just realize that that's what's happening here, is that he is shifting his focus to a whole different new and new entity, the church. And that's what's going on here. So follow along as I read verses 1 through 13 of Acts chapter 2, and then we will begin to deal with it. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all of the, why are not all these who are speaking or wait? Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around, Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You should underline that. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they, were, and they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. May the Lord bless his word. What you have And what I just read is, frankly, one of the most exciting and world-tilting events in the entire 
Bible, a place where a lot of confusion occurs and comes into play. Our passage that we see before us is the birth of the church, an entirely new entity that was never before known. You have here the birth of the church of which you belong, and it is never before known. In fact, this whole section is a fulcrum or a hinge moment in history. All of Luke and Acts chapter 1 is building to this moment right here. And we just read it in 13 verses, and not one of you wept out loud, right? All of you just took it, and you're like, okay, there we go, let's, let's do it. But you have no idea how massive this passage is. This is the moment that all of the Old Testament ultimately was pointing to when it said that the Spirit would be poured out upon the people. That the coming of the Messiah would also be connected with this other great event, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the establishing of this new covenant. And with this, again, as I've already said, I'll say again, we have very unique events that come about, which are unique in their own right. Now, I have the, if you have my notes and you're reading them, my next sentence is probably the one of the worst written sentences I've done in a long time. I apologize for it. I don't edit my sermons before I send them out. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you have the speaking in what we know of as tongues, there are just three examples of these unique events, okay? You have three events here, the indwelling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the speaking in tongues. Some of you know what tongues are, some of you don't. We'll talk about it today. What we want to do today, in fact, is to talk about the nature of tongues because it's the very first time in the entire Bible that you find it. The very first time you ever know of anything called tongues is right here in our passage. So really, the simplest way we'll deal with this is that we'll just deal with the passage quickly, and then we'll go into the nature of tongues. Now, the passage makes it very clear in verse 1 that we're dealing with the day of Pentecost, and, and I'm sure that many of you have a vague sense of what it is, but maybe not a clear sense of what the day of Pentecost is. It was an annual feast that took place in the spring. It was when they would offer the first fruits of their wheat harvest. Now, if you'll remember with Israel that they were called to offer the first fruits, meaning the initial uh, harvest of their whatever they were growing. They were commanded by God to offer that in the temple. And what that was designed to do is, first of all, it fed the Levites because the Levites, the priests, didn't have land. They had to depend upon the giving of the people to take care of them. But also, it was an act of faith. Because if you're a farmer, you generally will keep your first fruits for seed. You don't want to mess with that. You need to make certain that you have something to plant for the next year. You may have to go without a lot of food, but you've got to keep your seed so that you have something. You can't eat your seed or you starve the next year. But in Israel, it was very different. It was, no, you give all that you first harvest to the Lord and by doing it, it's an act of faith because God said, and I will then bring the rest of the harvest in for you. I will make sure that you have what you need. 
And so it was an act of faith as they obeyed the Lord in that command in the similar way that, that Paul tells us that we are to give out of the first of our money rather than whatever is left over. And we'll get into that another day. But it's that whole mindset that I will give what I am given by the Lord. I will give out of the first of that, not what's left over from that. One, you, you both are giving, but one is giving out of fear and self-protection, and the other one is giving out of faith, saying, I will trust the Lord will provide all that I need. I will just simply honor him with the first fruits, if you will. So that's what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. Now, you can read about it. I provide the passages that talk about it in Exodus and Deuteronomy. We won't spend the time there. But they celebrated it at the end of seven weeks. In fact, it was known as a week of weeks. Seven weeks like a week. It followed the Passover feast. And the word Pentecost means 50th, and it was the 50th day after Passover. So that's how they knew it was the day of Pentecost. When they celebrated Passover, they began to count. And on the 50th day, it was now the day of Pentecost. It was also thought by the Jews to be the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So it was a very special moment for them. And according to Exodus 34, 22 and 23, listen to this, the male, male Jews, not the female, but the male Jew were to present themselves at the temple. If you lived within 20 miles of the temple, you were expected to be there But in reality, many came from extremely long distances. In fact, you should think of this like a pilgrimage, kind of like what you see with uh, Muslims going to Mecca uh, and uh, go to Mecca. And it's a once in a lifetime moment for many of them where they travel massive distances just to go to Mecca. Well, it would be similar with the day of Pentecost. There would be Jews that would come from a long ways away, and it would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for them. So you have to picture then, on the day of Pentecost, in the temple grounds, there would be this massive presence of men who were devout Jews. So a lot of people there, all crowded. It's a big, big event. Now, that's the setting. Then, in all of that, it says in our passage that the Spirit comes. And he comes like a rushing, violent wind. But he's not a wind. It's just like a wind. Keep that in mind. And it has this noise. And the closest approximation is that like a wind. And, and we live in the Midwest. We know what that's like. We know when you see the thunderstorm coming and it might be very calm. And then you start to watch the trees rustle a little bit as the, as the wind picks up. And then all of a sudden, everything's just bent over, right? And the wind is just rushing through. And you're like, oh, it's coming. And then the wall of water hits you. Well, that's kind of the image that's going on here. Is, and understand that they didn't know when this would happen. All they knew was that the, the devout people that uh, were like the apostles that were waiting in that room, they were commanded to go and wait for the Spirit and, and be in prayer. So they're just waiting. There was no statement of at three o'clock on the day of Pentecost, it's going to happen. They didn't know. So it goes from completely calm, and maybe by this time they're starting to wonder, so when is this thing going to happen, to all of a sudden this violent, like wind-like noise and then this fire appears, 
but it's not really fire, but it's like fire. And then it begins to break into pieces. So you have these little tongues of flame and they go and they scatter throughout the room. This would be pretty freaky if you think about it. And, and it starts to rest on each person's head. So there's Joseph and he's, he's got a little flame like thing dancing above his head and his wife's like, ah, oh, and he's like, ah, oh, because it's over her head too. And, and all of this is going on. It's, it's, it's crazy. We, we read this so casually, right? But you would be losing it. This is what's happening is this massive moment comes and it's, it's this unique time. And what it's showing is that, that those flames break apart into individual flames is it's showing that this is not just a group event where the, the, this, this flame-like reality is over the group, but it's over each individual because it's emphasizing that each person was, in fact, receiving the Spirit, but also being filled with the Spirit. Remember, those are different things. Go back to my other sermon to learn about that. But what's more important is what happened afterward. You have this very visual sense of what's happening because how do you know? How do you know that the Spirit comes? How, how would anyone know? I mean, do you feel the Spirit? Well, this is how God showed them that the Spirit had come. And as a direct result of that, the Scripture says that the Spirit would cause them to now speak, get this, as He wishes. As He wishes. I want you to see that in the text. In verse for the Spirit was giving them utterance as He determined, not as they determined. They weren't just doing what they felt like doing. This is a unique moment. The Spirit rests upon them, and they began to do this thing called tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, meaning it was completely constrained and controlled and directed by the Spirit. There's no freedom of expression in this. It was the Spirit directing and controlling this whole thing. And they began, if you'll notice, to speak with other tongues. Notice that I spoke, said that in the plural, that there are multiple different tongues. Now, that's really helpful if you know what I mean by tongues, right? But if you don't know, and you don't have no idea what I'm talking about right now, I have not been helpful at all. I keep using this word tongues, and you're like, what's with this tongues? What do you mean by it? And this is where the beginning of the confusion arises with the whole subject, because we tend to go from personal experience backwards into the Bible. And we don't like to admit that we do it, but we do it all the time. We start with where we are and what we've experienced, and then we go to the Bible to see if we can find it. And we kind of back our way into the Scripture, and as a result, many people become frustrated when they try to deal with this issue of tongues, and I hope that I can help you with it today. Countless churches and countless individuals, frankly, have suffered in a, under a vague, weak, or hasty reaction to the phenomena known as tongues. Maybe some of you have. Maybe you've experienced that, where you went to a church where tongues, as they call it, um, are practiced, and, and, you, and you're like, well, I didn't do that, and I wonder, was there something wrong with me? Was I broken? I remember uh, a man who now attends up at the other campus, 
he was telling me his experience where the, the, he would play on the band and the band would gather together before they would practice. And they, they said, well, let's just all pray in tongues. And so everyone starts doing that. And he's just sort of sitting there like this because he didn't. And he's like, I never felt a compulsion or anything else. And I'm like, so what was that like? He's like, he's like, well, I'm stubborn, so it didn't bother me too much. But you do always wonder, maybe am I broken? Am I broken? Is there something wrong with me? What you find, if you talk to people about this, that splits, arguments, confusion, excitement, ecstasy, concern, fear, and other types of reactions are very common when we start to talk about the subject of tongues. And the reason for it is that experience today is far more authoritative in our life than the written word. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear it because it's important. The hard reality is that experience today is far more authoritative in a person's life than the written word. This is a challenge for anyone who pastors or leads. You can teach, you can preach, you can disciple, and you can counsel. And you watch people time and time and time again dismiss what's said because they have experienced something. They don't feel comfortable. At, they don't have a peace about this. It bothers them, and they can't really put their finger on it, but they're not budging, even though you've given them good counsel, because their experience is more authoritative in their life than your, the written word. And if you're preaching and teaching and discipling and counseling out of the word of God or at, from, from that platform, what happens is you discover people dismiss you far more than you realize. Let me give you two quick examples. Maybe you're at a church. You got invited to a church or a small group where the, the idea of tongues are practiced, Okay. And you find yourself in a very emotional situation. Maybe the friends around you or the church, they've been doing very, very emotional type of praying, and they've been doing the kind of music that's extremely emotionally driven, and, and there's just this entire high, heavy emotion going on among the people. And you're around them. you got people maybe weeping and people muttering and, and saying, yes, Lord Jesus, come. Yes, yes, Lord, whatever it might be. And there's just this buildup of emotion. And then you have a friend that is with you, and they just begin to encourage you. You need to let go. Just let go and let the Spirit flow in your heart. Just let go and let the Spirit flow in your heart. And maybe you're encouraged to begin to just make words come out of your mouth. Whatever sound, whatever word that comes to your mind, just let it go and let it flow and let the Spirit take over. And then suddenly, without you expecting it, an incredibly strong level of emotion washes over you and overwhelms you, literally, and you begin to make sounds in your mouth that you have never made and that you didn't expect to make. And then you, you find your whole body having almost like a rush, an emotional high, as you experience something that maybe you've never experienced before. And by that, you determine, wow, 
I have just experienced the Holy Spirit. So what do you say to that? What would I say to that? Well, I had many a person tell me that very type of story. I had one man who explained how he was at a church, a local church, and they were trying to help him learn to speak in what is called tongues, and he was not doing it, and they were getting frustrated with him that he just wasn't doing it, and and his friend literally grabbed him by his mouth and squeezed his cheeks together like that and said, just say, la, 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 just say it, and he's like, no, I'm not not saying that, And, and they were just trying to get him to let it out because they knew he could do it. What, what, what do we respond? Well, here's how I respond. I don't respond at all. I'm not going to debate with you whether or not this experience happened. If that's what happened to you, that's what happened to you, and that's fine. My only thing is it's not found anywhere in Scripture. Do you see the difference? I'm not debating whether or not you experience that. There's nothing bad about that experience in itself. Not at all. And I think some of you who don't believe in tongues or this phenomena, that you can maybe inadvertently push people away that have experienced this, and you're like, no. I've, I've had people say, well, that's just demonic. And I'm like, I think you should be careful saying that. We don't need to debate the experience. All we need to really do is say, but what does the Scripture say? And if you're going to rest on your experience as opposed to what the Scripture actually says, then you've answered for yourself what is more authoritative. Does that make sense? What is more authoritative? What I've experienced or what the Scripture says? Set example two. Here's a more uh, common way that you see this in a church like ours. You're trying to determine what is right and true about a doctrine, about uh, a, a, a practice in the church. Maybe you're trying to think about a move. You're thinking about moving. And you say, and, and there's just stuff that you're hearing from people, and then you say something like this. You know what? Pastor, I appreciate this. What I think I need to do is just pray about this and seek the mind of God. Have you ever said that? I just need to pray about this and seek the mind of God. When I hear that as a pastor... I would say this, prayer's good. You'll never hear me tell you not to pray. But exactly what are you looking for when you say you're going to seek the mind of God? What does that mean? How will you know if God has spoken to you? What's the criteria by which you're going to determine that? Is it a feeling of peace? Is it an impression Is it a dream? Is it a thought that starts going through your mind? What is it that you are going to determine that you will then state, God told me, fill in the blank. By doing that, all you've shown is that experience is more important than the word of God. There is only one place on heaven and earth that God has given to us that we can know for absolute certainty his mind, and it is what? The word. And so when I hear people telling me, I'm just praying about it, I'm like, but what are you praying for? 
If you're praying that God will somehow teach you or show you, but you're not going back to his word and seeking godly counsel by men or women who are literally drenched in this word, then you're, you're going after something, but it's not the word of God. You are going after some kind of expression of experience, and that, in fact, has more authority. Both of these are very common. Both of them are used to argue for the validity of decisions and beliefs, but neither of these are, in fact, premised off of the Word of God. You may have had an incredible, what you would call spiritual experience, but it doesn't make it any more biblical than another person who has never experienced that, because that is not the basis of truth. Beloved, it's this simple. The authority of the word of God is key to spiritual growth and vitality, and that is where we must always begin and end. Now, take that idea and apply it to tongues. The hard reality is that there are very few examples of tongues in the Bible. Very few. Around 16. Here in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. That's it. That's it. No more. I watched a video of a guy who was trying to encourage people to experience tongues as a way to, for spiritual growth. And he's like, why should we speak in tongues? Why should we do this? He's like, because tongues is all over the Bible. And I already was annoyed with him. The moment he said that, I'm like, you don't even know your Bible. Acts, a few times in 1 Corinthians, 16 times. 16 times. That's it. It's not all over the Bible. Now, you watch people and listen to people, you'd swear it's everywhere, but it's not. Now, if you want to know more about this, you can listen to my sermon series I've done through 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 on spiritual gifts. There I go into detail. Here, all I want to do is focus on the nature of tongues in the book of Acts by observing how they're used and what they actually are, because this is the first time it shows up on the scene, and there's a lot of opinion about what happens, but very little actually looking at the text. And then we'll also look briefly at 1 Corinthians and make a few other quick observations. And what is my goal? Well, my goal is very simple, twofold. I hope to encourage anyone who has ever spoken in what is called tongues, or has never spoken in tongues, rather, and wondered maybe if they're missing out or there's something wrong with them, to understand that they're not missing out on anything. They're not missing out on some biblical blessing that maybe they fail to understand. I just want you to know that you're not weird or broken. On the other side, I also want to help prevent unnecessary unkindness to those who do or have spoken in what are called tongues. We cannot and ought not ever make them think that somehow they're broken or they're messed up because their experience and what they're experiencing is not the issue. What I want to try to do, though, is get you and I at least, I can't deal with anybody else, but I can hopefully deal with this church, is help us begin to talk about tongues as they're supposed to be talked about. Now, you've heard me say it over and over again, so-called tongues, this thing called tongues. The reason I keep saying that is that what people call tongues today is not tongues. And we'll see that in just a minute. What people call tongues today is not tongues. 
Now, if you're going to argue from experience, you can call it anything you want. But if you're going to argue from the scripture, it's not tongues. I'll explain it here. So open your Bibles to Acts if you haven't by now done so. We're going to just go quickly with eight observations that help explain and, and listen, contain the practice of tongues. Eight observations that explain and contain means we put boundaries around the practice of tongues. In verse 4, we see the very first observation. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and notice immediately and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The very first observation is that tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not deep, but we're going to make even obvious observations. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's the very first occurrence of the term, and it's directly tied to this filling of the Holy Spirit. Remember the fancy word, pimplemi in the Greek? It means this unique empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about being baptized with the Spirit. It's not talking about being indwelt by the Spirit. It's talking about being filled with the Spirit. They're all different. They might be related, but they're different. This is a unique empowerment by God to do something. When you are filled with the Spirit, you usually speak, you, you preach, you pray, you prophesy. Here, you speak in tongues. It's very word-based. So it's a very unique and special event. And listen, it's not learned, nor is it acquired on your own or with your own efforts. It's something the Spirit does, and only the Spirit. True tongues only happens when the Spirit causes it to happen. Second observation. All tongues really is, is language. All tongues is, is language. Paul, uh, Luke, rather, makes this observation in verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then in following, he says, they were in verse 6, they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. So it's not that they were hearing it in their own language. The words coming from the mouth of the people speaking in tongues was the language of these people. Hear that and understand. So what they're hearing come out of their mouth is their language, and I'll explain why. Now, remember that Luke has to write all of this on the papyrus, and papyrus is a type of paper. I won't get into all the ins and outs of it, but understand it was expensive, and you wrote on every square inch of that, front and back oftentimes. And so when you're writing a book the size of Acts, you're not just like, oh, I'm just going to throw in extraneous details. So in the book of Acts, you should always ask yourself, why does he throw in these little details? Why does he let us know in verse 5 that there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation? Why, why is that there? Well, it's there for a reason. They were devout men. They had come, again, from many different places in the world. And the thing is, because, the reason for this is because of the day of Pentecost. And it was the day that the serious men, the devout men of, 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 who were Israelites would come to remember the faithfulness of God. These were people of what's called the diaspora, the diaspora, the dispersed. 
Remember, back in 722 and then in 586 BC, I'm sure you keep those numbers in your mind all the time and discuss them over breakfast. Um, But those were key events in the history of Israel as the 10 tribes were taken into captivity and then the two tribes of of Judah uh, were taken into captivity. And they were dragged out of their homeland and dispersed throughout the other nations. And when they did that, they became known as the diaspora. Many of them lived there and died there, and their children lived and died, and so on and so forth, until they became very much like those people. But there were those who were the devout Jews who never forgot who they were, even though they still lived in Arabia, even though they still lived in Ethiopia, they never forgot that they were a Jew, and they were very devout. And they would hope and plan for this moment in time where they could finally travel to Jerusalem to remember the day of Pentecost. It would be a once in a lifetime opportunity for them. And it was a major issue. Now imagine though, if you lived here and you were a ninth generation removed Romanian. All right, so you, you're here, you're Romanian, but it was your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and mother who lived in some tiny village in the hills of Romania, and you were to travel back to that village, you would feel out of, the, out of place, right? Everything that goes on there, you don't know what's going on. You, you, you know you're Romanian, and you know this is your home, but you don't belong there. They don't talk like you, they don't act like you, nothing is normal for you. And you would stick out like a sore thumb to them. They would realize that you are a foreigner, even though technically this is your home village. That's what's happening to these uh, men. They travel long, long distances. Remember, they didn't have a plane. They don't just get online with their app and, and book a flight. They have to plan a massive trip with great expense and also danger to them, all for this opportunity to go here. And so as a result, because it was so far away, they would stay in Jerusalem for many weeks afterward, seven, eight, even more weeks after the day of Pentecost. And that becomes an issue in Acts chapter 6 when we get there. So the people who began to speak in tongues must have all erupted at once. Now, if, if you had an image of what the temple grounds look like, you have this low wall, maybe two, three feet high, and the Gentiles could not go past that. Even if you were uh, a proselyte, you couldn't go past that st- place. Okay, you had to you had to stay out because you're a Gentile. And then you could go over this w- short wall, and then you would have within that, and that was just a general courtyard. Then you'd have another courtyard that would hold up to six thousand people. That's called the court of the women. Now, men and women would be both in there, but the women could never go further than the court of the woman or women. Then within there would be where the men could go in with their sacrifice, and they would present the sacrifice to the priest. And then there's this wall where the men couldn't go past, only the priest could be. Now we're in the holy place, and only the priest can be in there. And they would then take the sacrifice and do the rituals commanded in the Old Testament. And then inside there was called the Holy of Holies. And no one got to go there except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
So that's the imagery here. And so somehow these people have now had the Spirit come upon them, and now they're speaking in other languages, and it must have been some big noise. Most likely, they're all literally proclaiming, and more like a preaching voice than a talking voice. Uh, How do we say it to our kids? Use your inside voice. Uh, they're not using their inside voice. They're using their outside voice, and they're very loud. And the result of it is all of these people in the courtyards hear this sudden commotion of this eruption of people talking very loudly, and they start to look, just like you would. And they begin to listen. And what they find out is that these people are not talking some kind of a gibberish, and I don't mean that hard or mean. I just mean... They're not just making nonsensical words come out of their mouth. They're speaking a language. All of these different languages are now represented here that we see listed in verses 8 and following. Notice it says their own language in verse 8. They heard them in our own, their unique language. This would get down to the very idea of even dialects. But the language, listen, was unknown by the speaker. Notice in verse 7, they were amazed and they marveled, saying, Why are why are all are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, what do they mean by that? What they're doing is they're looking at these people who are talking in their language suddenly, perfectly and loudly, and they're like, How does he know Arabic? He's a Galilean. And you're like, well, how do they know he's a Galilean? Well, it's not because they have a little sticker. Hello, my name's Fred, and I'm from Galilee. It's because of their dress, and it's because of the way they they have their facial hair. Everything. It screams Galilean. And if you don't travel around the world, I'm going to assume it's like this in India, that you can look at a person and get a sense of where they're from just in their dress and the way they eat and, and what they do. Um, In Ethiopia, it's so obvious. In Cameroon, it's even more obvious. You can look at a man and immediately say, oh, he's Fulani. He's Fulani. He's up from the northern Cameroon part. He's Muslim. And and, and I already even know, because he's uh, of his dress and his facial hair, I already know what he does for a living. He handles cattle. All of that by just simply looking at a person. I, I know. And I've been in Ethiopia so many times, I now can start to break down the various people groups within Ethiopia. And that's what's happening here. They know these people are Galileans, and they also know that Galileans don't know Arabic. It's not like today where you get to travel around and learn languages. You live in your little circle of the world, and you never go beyond that. And yet, though that's unknown... They are hearing what's going on. So we have now a baseline of the nature of what are tongues. It's not some ecstatic language. It's an actual language that's spoken by others that they don't know. It's a language spoken by others that they don't know. But it's an actual language. Unfortunately, the translators of the Bible keep choosing to still translate the word, and the word is glossa. It means tongue, but it also means language, like our mother tongue, right? What's your mother tongue? Well, you know what I mean by that. They keep on translating it as tongues rather than what they should translate it as language. 
Listen real quickly how I read these verses and see how much easier they're understand. And there's no confusion when I just use the word language instead. In Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. Well, that, that's simple. And it's not weird. Acts 2.11, we hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Let's go over into 1 Corinthians real quick, and I'll say it here in chapter 12, verse 10. And to another, the effecting of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the distinguishing the spirits, to another, various kinds of languages, and to another, the interpretation of languages. By replacing tongues with languages, the passage takes on a different feel and a different meaning and that would be good for you. So when I am talking about tongues, I want you to understand, I am not talking about what you see in many people's lives or in the churches today where there's that, that ecstatic type of speech that has no meaning to it and that the people know what's going on. I'm talking about biblical tongues, which is an actual language of man. So we can make that simple conclusion right now that most of what is called tongues today is not what the Bible calls tongues. What you hear is not a language that is known by others. Even though a person may dearly love doing what they do, it's not biblical tongues. Now, I'm also here to tell you that's not to say it's wrong or that it's bad or evil. It's just not tongues. That's all. It's not tongues. Whatever you're doing, it's not tongues, and it would be helpful to stop calling it tongues because it keeps confusing the issue of what is tongues, which is simply languages. Next observation. Tongues, and I'm going to use the word tongues, but I'm going to use it as languages. Tongues is outward focus. In verses 8 and 11, they hear the people speaking in their own, in the listener's languages. And in verse 10, they hear, we, we hear them in our own tongues and then speaking of the mighty acts of God. Here's the simple point. The idea of speaking in tongues or languages has become completely inward focused by those who practice it today. When you ask a person why they speak in tongues, it's not so that they might make known the mysteries of God to people. It's not for others, it's for them. It's how they have their devotions. It's how they have their time of worship, private worship with God. It's about them. And again, I'm not meaning that harshly or mean, but it's just simply very inward focus. But that's not the purpose of tongues. Too many people assume that in, when I'm supposedly talking in tongues, I'm talking directly to God somehow. Now I'm talking to God. But if you just think about that for a moment, that makes no sense. God knows what everyone is saying. You're not, when I'm talking in my language, another top person is talking in their language, they're still talking to God. God knows perfectly what they are saying. There's not a special language that gets you really close to God in your language. It's also commonly believed that through, that through tongues, we experience personal transformation, that we become godly. But nothing in the scripture would indicate that. It's become a means somehow to make yourself a mature Christian, but the Bible simply doesn't support that idea. Again, it goes back to the idea of what is your authority. Third, 
It's also believed to be the perfect prayer language to God. You'll hear all of these types of things over and over again. It's the perfect prayer language to God, but the speaker literally has no idea what he's saying. So how does he know it's the perfect prayer language? Who can judge that? If what's coming out of your mouth makes no sense to anyone, then how do we know you're saying anything, much less the perfect prayer to God, as if any of us are able to pray a perfect prayer? Tongues, like every gift from the Holy Spirit, such as teaching or leading or mercy and others, are always outward focused so that we might minister to others. It's never about what we get out of it. And this is simply what we see in verses 8 through 11. And 11. The people are surprised because they're now hearing in their own language. Matt and I have traveled, as you know, around the world. And one of the most common things that happen to us that we don't like is that we get invited to be there in worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ in some other country. So we show up. In fact, we literally try to land on a Sunday so we don't have to go to church. Now that sounds mean, right? That sounds like, what's up with that? You know why? Because we get invited to the church and and an Ethiopian church service can go for a while. A Cameroonian service can really go for a while. And Romanian churches never get out. They never stop talking. Uh, You swear you're going to die. You're going to, I'm going to literally become old and die right here. Really? So I try to land in the country I'm going to be teaching in on Sunday so that we can't go to church. And you're like, well, that's not right, Matt. Well, that's because you're not the one sitting for four hours not understanding a single word. You get invited. There's song. There's Actions, there's dances, there's people all of a sudden squealing out with this really weird noise that Ethiopians make uh, that scares you when you're not expecting it. Uh, All kinds of stuff is happening. Then a long sermon, and so then you think, oh, the sermon's done, we're done. No, then another sermon, and then some more singing, and then some more dancing, then another sermon. At least I guess there's sermons. I don't know, and I don't know what's being said. The whole time. Folks, that gets old quick, really old, especially when you're on a like a a backless bench and you're tired, you just flown. Now, other times we'll be at a church and they'll have a translator sit next to us, and as the person's singing, they'll whisper to you, she's singing about enduring in the midst of hardships and sufferings and trusting in Jesus. All right. I still don't know what she's saying, but I can get behind that, right? I can say, all right, all right, I'll pray for that. And then when they're saying a prayer, the person whispers to you, they're asking that God might heal a woman who has been uh, uh, afflicted with many, many sicknesses. Okay, I can pray for this woman now, because I now know what's going on, right? And, And then they say, They're praying for uh, the offering because uh, there's not enough money and they still can't do this. Okay, I can pray. Then when the guy starts to preach, they can tell me what he's saying, and I can either rejoice with what's being said or be annoyed at what's being said, but I now know what's being said. Imagine you've traveled 
long distances to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, and most of the time you have no idea what's going on. Most of the time it's being said in uh, Aramaic, and you don't speak Aramaic. And so you're like, I don't know what they're saying, but I'm here. I'm here because I love Yahweh. That's the point here. The ability to speak in these foreign languages for, was for the hearer's sake, not the speaker's. In verse 11, we also learn this, make this observation. Tongues is overtly, not overly, overtly God-centered. Overtly God-centered. It's a very simple point, but it's important to make. Speaking in tongues or languages was nothing more than a language you don't know, but the hearer knows. But what's even more important is the content of the speech. They spoke not of just anything that came to their mind. They spoke of the mighty deeds of God, according to verse 11. (coughs) This phrase, the mighty deeds of God, is used in the Psalms to speak of those times of God's glory and greatness and power. They are times in which they witness the God to act in a great and, and frightening but good way for them. And the point of it is to encourage people to look to God and not to man. So here in the temple square, everyone is being quiet and they're all minding their own business and just doing what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, out comes this loud proclamation from a whole group of people and they're all just talking very loudly, but in a language that's not theirs. And you all of a sudden realize, hey, that's my language. And you start to listen, and what's coming out of their mouth are a proclamation of the great things of God. They're not about the endless drivel that you see coming from the pulpits today about how you can be a better you, or how you can put a new spark in your marriage, or how you can fix your parenting problems. It's all about God. That's what's coming out of these people's minds or mouths. Why? Well, because it's the Spirit doing the talking. He's giving them utterance, and the Spirit always brings a focus onto the Father and the Son, always. It's not about you, it's about God. Second, it's because what's actually prophesied in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about the day the Spirit would come upon the people of God. And what you're doing when you're talking about the mighty deeds of God is reminding them that God acts, and he's always faithful to act. He, he acts by choosing Abraham to be the father of Israel. He acts in the Exodus event by rescuing them out of Egypt. He acts by bringing them across the Red Sea and feeding them manna from heaven. He acts when he knocks the walls of Jericho down as they take over the promised land. These are all his mighty deeds. And as they remember that, they also then are being prepared to remember another great event promised in the Old Testament, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. All of that is his faithfulness. And so what it does is it sets the stage for Peter to preach to the crowd and call them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. It's get your mind on the great things of God rather than yourself, and now hear the word of God. And then Peter preaches, and I'll preach that when I'm back in the pulpit. You also will see this in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, keep your finger here, but in Acts 10, just look there. 
The next time uh, the tongues show up is here in verse 42 to 46. Peter is out and he's among the Gentiles. And in 42, it says, and he ordered us, he, God, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, talking about Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So it's the gospel. He's like, you just need to believe in Jesus and you're forgiven. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the circumcised believers, that's a Jew, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How does how do they know this happened? For this reason, verse six, they were hearing them speak with languages. And what were they saying? They were exalting God. So his point in this passage is this. The Jews were very happy to have the Spirit come upon them. They were very happy to be now part of this new thing called the church. They weren't so sure about you and I, the Gentiles. So here's Peter. He's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They're outside. They're, they're over here. The real people are here. But the same thing that happens to the people in Jerusalem happens to these people and now he, what he's showing is that, see, something new is happening. That's all it is. But what's coming from their mouth is not ecstatic speech, but literally the Gentiles wouldn't know Aramaic, and most likely that's the language they were speaking. They were speaking the tongue of the Jews, and they heard that, and they heard them now exalting God, speaking of the mighty things of God, and they realized he had come upon them as well. So quick summary, tongues is simply the work of the Holy Spirit that results in speaking a different language that's focused on informing others rather than blessing the speaker. And it is centered around the declaration of the mighty deeds of God. Now we're going to go to 1 Corinthians now, and we're going to do very quickly, and I promise it will be very quick, three other observations. So go to 1 Corinthians 12. And I just want to make three other observations because invariably in a sermon like this, people are going to think of these verses. In chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, the next observation is this, that tongues is not guaranteed to be present in every church and place. Tongues is not guaranteed to be in every church and place. In verses 4 through 7, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, notice, for the common good. Not for them, but for the common good of the church. Now, you have a very triune nature of the giving of the gifts. You have gifts given by the Spirit, the ministries, how those gifts work themselves out, given by the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the effects, what is the result of that ministry given by the Father. So the triune God is involved in this. So I have the gift of preaching, let's say, and then the Lord also gives me a ministry 
to which I can work that out. Here, it's, it's here. I know because I'm here. So this is my ministry that God has given me and the effects, how big it will be or how great it will be or how small it will be or effective, whatever it is, is not up to me. It's ultimately up to the Father. All three of the persons of the Trinity are involved in this outworking of the gifts, but it's all for the common good, and each one of us has it done uniquely. Understand that nowhere do we have a master list of the spiritual gifts. Many of you, if you've grown up in the church, you have taken those spiritual gift inventory tests, right? And if you're even remotely smart, you can make yourself always have the gift you want because they're really dumb uh, tests. But we've all taken them if you've been around the church any length of time. Um, and we, we have all these lists about he, these are what the gifts are. The problem is that none of the lists in the, church, in the Bible agree with each other. You have it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. All right, those are the four places that gifts are mentioned, and none of them agree with each other. So you have some gifts here and not here, and some gifts here but not here, etc. So which one's right, or do you just stick them all together? Here's the point. The reason they don't all agree together is that's not the point. The proper focus is actually upon the fact that God is giving to each one of them a unique gifting. It's better to see it this way, and you've, some of you have heard this from me before. Picture that you have a whole bunch of pots all containing giftedness, for lack of a better, ingredients. And what the Spirit does is, to grace, and he gives like two scoops of teaching and one scoop of mercy and a half a scoop of giving. And he mixes it all around, that's his. To his wife, it's four scoops of mercy one scoop of teaching, and no giving. She's stingy. Uh, all right, so that's hers. The point is that we're all a different blend. You and I try to say, I have the gift of teaching, and we have this nice little wall around that. No, we have our own gifting. And, and some of it manifests itself more strongly in this way than that way, but it's a unique one given to us. Here's another thing that many people don't understand, that never does the Bible say that you get a gift when you're saved and it's yours forever. You might have had this experience, that you were in a church that was weak with teaching. It just was weak. The pulpit was weak, the Sunday school classes, everything was weak, and it really burdened you. It came upon you really strong that it really burdened you how bad the teaching was, and you began to study and without you knowing it, you began to influence people. You began to teach. And you began to gather people around that you could teach. In spite of what's going on in the pulpit, in spite of what's going on over here, you had an incredible influence in the lives of people that affected the life of the church. And now you're like, wow, I have the gift of teaching. It's obvious. But then over time, God brings in a pastor who's got a strong gift of teaching and what you watch is that your influence starts to go away. And as you watch it go away, you wonder what's going on. And maybe there's jealousy or this or that. But what can happen is just simply this. God, God gifted you for the time with a strong gift of teaching because it was needed for the health of the church. Then as he brought other people with a, a, that giftedness, your giftedness 
actually went backwards and changed and shifted. But what we try to do is hold on to that and say, that's my identity. No, it's not. Your identity is always just Jesus Christ. All of us should never assume that our giftedness is forever. Nowhere does the Bible tell you, you get your gift and it's yours forever, and now you're a card-carrying teacher or a card-carrying whatever. So understand that tongues is not normative for the churches because the only times you see it happening are three times in Acts, and it's talked about here in 1 Corinthians. And here in 1 Corinthians, he's rebuking them about how they're talking in tongues, not encouraging them. The next observation is verse 1 of chapter 13. Tongues, or this language, is not some angelic speech or ecstatic language. He says, if I speak with the tongues or the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. This passage is usually ripped out of its context, and now we say, ah, what's coming out of my mouth when I'm speaking, because nobody knows what I'm saying, the reason they don't know what I'm saying is I'm not talking in a human language, I'm talking in angelic language, and that's pretty cool. The problem is, how do you know it's a angelic language. If nobody knows what you're saying, including you, then there's no way you know that's angelic language. And second, that's not the point of, that, he's not, that he's making. He's not saying here, if you speak in a language you don't know and nobody else knows, it's an angelic language. That's not what he's saying. What he's making is a different point. He's saying, look, if you could speak in every language ever Unknown, whatever, whether it be man or angels. So he's taking it to its furthest extreme. And he says, but you don't have love, you're just a noisemaker. That's all his point is not about tongues or angelic speaking. His point is you need to love. In the same way, he says in verse 2, if you have the gift of prophecy, oh, I got the gift of prophecy, another. In in Corinth, there were two groups that were fighting each other, the ones who spoke in other languages and the people who spoke in prophecy. And they were at war with each other as to who was the greater. His point is, both of you have missed the point. You're not loving. So he's like, if you have the gift of prophecy and you know all the mystery and all the knowledge and all the faith, but you don't have love, you're just nothing. That's the point. It's, it's not that somebody could possess all the knowledge, all the faith, and all the mysteries. It's, he's using it to the extreme, hyperbole, to make his point. What's more important is love. And that's all it means. So don't think that tongues somehow, if you don't know what it's saying, or what a person's saying, that it must be angelic speech. It's not. That's not the point of that passage. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 11, tongues is not for personal edification. Pursue love, he says, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, you should listen to my sermon series on this if you want to hear this in detail. For one who speaks in a tongue or language does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. For one who speaks in a language edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies or builds up the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in languages. 
but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in languages, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in a language, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce in distinction in the, a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Or for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now, his point is simply this. If you're talking in tongues, meaning another foreign language that you don't know, then no one is built up by that if there's not a person to uh, translate that. So I don't know Spanish, but Gloria Kosiski knows Spanish. So if I suddenly, from now, just burst out in perfect Spanish, which would be kind of cool, only the Spanish-speaking people here are tracking with me. But if Gloria then immediately came up here next to me, and as I spoke, she then translated to you, now you guys can all understand, right? But if I don't, then pretty soon, trust me, you'll realize what it feels like to hear babble because you won't know what's going on. That's what he means. He's like, you're, you're speaking into the air. You, you're a barbarian. You don't even know. It's like, whatever, he's talking. I have no idea. That's the point. Edification simply means to build up or strengthen. If you just let the passage work itself out, you'll realize that he's arguing that tongues or this language should be used in a very limited way. And in fact, he commands in verse 28 that if there is not a person who can translate what you are saying, you are not to say it. You're not to speak. So you have this desire to speak, but you know it's going to come out in a foreign language because that was your gift. He says, no, you say no, and you keep your mouth shut because there's no one there to interpret for you. That includes then if you're privately alone. You don't talk what you don't know. You can't do that. It may feel good, as he says. It may build you up. It may edify you, but that's not the point. It's not about you. It's about others. So it's all really summed up in verses 10 and 11. Language is not understood. Language that's not understood has no meaning, and therefore it has no value. So remember, it's always built around edifying the people to build them up. So go back to Acts, and we'll say two or three more minutes here, and then we'll go. Let's just close this all out in verses 12 and 13. So they're hearing them speak of the mighty deeds of God in all of these foreign languages, and it says they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And to others, 
or but others were mocking and saying, well, they're filled with sweet wine. So there is a reaction to this event. Whenever you're confronted by the things of God, there's always going to be a reaction. But it's always going to be over the message and not you, all right? When you are truly doing God's work in that way, it's not because you're obnoxious that they react. It's because the message affects them. They'll either be amazed, afraid, or annoyed, but they will react to what you say when you're speaking the word of God. Some were amazed, some were confused, and some mocked, but they all reacted. But listen, not one of them was saved. Not one. As cool as this event was, and how amazing this event was, not one person was saved. So think about what I preached last week. Not one was converted. Why? Because it's not the gospel. They were talking of the mighty deeds of God. They were proclaiming those things, but they were not giving the gospel. And God only saves when you hear the gospel and you believe the gospel. What is the gospel? In the simplest of terms, that Christ stood in your place, took your sin on the cross, he suffered in your place, died your death, and rose again, destroying the power of death in his resurrection. That he is Lord over heavens and the earth, and the call is, come, believe, and follow. That's the gospel. What this event did, though, is set up the opportunity for the gospel to get be given. And so what will happen is in verses 14 to the end of the chapter, we see this working itself out. Now, Peter can get up and tell everyone, what you see happening is this. And then he can say, and in light of this, this is what you must do. Some obeyed and believed, and some rebelled and did not believe. So we'll look at that the next time I speak to you, Lord willing. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would uh, consider these things, and for anyone who treasures what they call tongues in their life, I pray that they would treasure it and yet understand what it is and what it is not. For those who have maybe been burdened because they've never experienced that, that they might find release and relief that you have been gracious to them, and yet they've not experienced those things, and that they understand what tongues is all about. Father, I thank you for the fact that the Spirit still works and causes things to go about in ways that we don't understand or expect, but I also thank you for just the boring, normal things of life, how you continue to bring us Sunday after Sunday together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You continue to give us the word that we in freedom can read and know. I pray, Lord, that you will put it in our hearts to do that. I pray for these people that you'll send them home considering the things of the gospel to consider how frail life is and how fleeting it is and that they make certain that they speak to others about Christ and they make certain that in their own heart they are right before you through the gospel. In your son's holy name, amen.